Hi there. I'm Joe Dudek, president and founder of Keyhole Marketing. And I'm Shannon Jarek. I work for Keyhole as the assistant brand manager. And this is Metaphorically Speaking, a podcast that explores the mysterious side of marketing. Welcome to Metaphorically Speaking. We are excited to be joining you for another episode. We had just an incredible conversation with Timothy Gillis, otherwise known as T.H. Gillis, who just has an incredible story. We love talking with people who kind of have just a pivotal change in their lives or Mm -hmm. something that really just defines them as a person. And with Timothy, he has a really unique story. He is a full-time accountant, you know, and has been in the accounting world and in the law practice for much of his adult life. Um, So accountant by day and poet by night, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. So not necessarily a common type of person, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect somebody who is an accountant to just kind of be an artist. You know, he doesn't have the term artist (laughs) as his full-time career, if you will, but he's just inspired by the world around him and has decided to write about it. Yeah. I love, I love always exploring with business owners, entrepreneurs, artists, you know, what was that plot twist that happened in their life that led them not necessarily away from what they're doing, but, but maybe added another path, uh, along their journey. And that's the case here of just, he continues in his, his craft as far as an accountant at KPMG, but he has this other side that he's been tapping into the last couple of years on this creative space and letting that come out through poetry, uh, which is a unique art form. I think it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not just him rambling through some sort of prose. He's, he's putting this into a, a form that can be, difficult to create and sometimes a task to, to comprehend, but I think he's done it really well. And, and most, most certainly in his most recent book, eyesight, what I saw, which he published, I guess, technically this year, but he, he sent off to the printer late last year, which was really a collection of observations he saw in 2020, which what it, what a year to, to, to observe what's going on. And, um, that was just his way of really processing all the kind of chaos of the year. Yeah. And I love how he's so open to just talking about the vulnerability that comes behind poetry and not Mm -hmm. just poetry, but sharing your art, you know, and you listen to him speak and he has definitely that two sides of his brain, that juxtaposition, you know, he's analytical and logical, but you can hear just the movement and the meaning Mm -hmm. behind his words and the inspiration that he finds when he just pauses and observes the world around him. And, you know, he mentions kind of jumping into that vulnerability. It's scary to share your artwork. You know, Joe, yeah. you're a photographer. It's scary to sometimes share those images and, you know, wonder what people will think about them or for any artists out there to share their music or something. And Tim just says, I encourage people to just find that vulnerability. And even if it's just for yourself, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. That is the scary part of you can always create these things, put it in your journal, keep it on your camera keep it on your laptop, whatever it may be, but it's, um, difficult to put it out there for somebody else. And you don't, you're not always sure who that somebody else is and you're most often creating it for yourself. So I think that can be the challenge of like, how will this be received by people who I didn't really intend to see it when I first wrote it or created it. And so that, that was a huge risk I thought he took. And he and I had had a conversation years ago when he released his first book and, you know, he was on that edge of, 
do I share this? Do I put some, do I do something with this? And uh, I'm glad he followed that, that nudge a little bit and produced that book uh, in 2017. And then this new one in 2020. Yeah. And we're just grateful that we can be a part of that too. You know, Tim was able to kind of share that with everybody. So Mm -hmm. if you're interested in his most recent book, you can visit thgillis.us and click the order now button on the homepage. And it'll take you right to that spot where you can order it. Um, It's a beautiful book, you know, just a really great reflection on the year of 2020 that we all experienced and kind of the hardships and pain and journey that the world took last year. So just a really meaningful book for everyone there, something everyone can get out of it. Yeah. And I think like, even if you're not a huge fan of poetry, maybe there's a friend or family member you could consider purchasing this for. Uh, It's only $25 and all proceeds every penny of it goes to the brain and behavior research foundation, which Tim unpacks in the podcast, like why that organization stood out to him. And, um, ultimately what they do is just provide grants for mental health research and just a beautiful organization what they're, what they're doing. And it's super gracious of him to donate all of the proceeds from the sales of this to that organization. So again, if you're on the fence about poetry, there's certainly a, it's a win-win I think for you to, to, to get this and fund that kind of research. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Tim, for joining this conversation and just being vulnerable with us. And we hope that you guys enjoy the episode. I always like to get these uh, interviews started with just a little bit of a a better understanding of, you know, who you are, who you are as a person, where'd you grow up and that sort of thing. And I know, I know you work in DC right now and you live outside the district. What, and you're a partner at KPMG and one of the big four accounting firms, but you also started from some humble beginnings. Talk a little bit about your childhood, if you would, Tim, just to kind of help set the stage. Yeah, I grew up in South Georgia. Um, my parents uh, had married when they were 19 and 16. And, um, and uh, they were farmers. They didn't have much at all and didn't have much education. Mom graduated from 11th grade, and I think dad made it through something a lot less than that, maybe eighth grade. And um, the way they've told it is that mom helped dad learn to read about the time I was born when he was about 35 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they moved uh, from you know, small town, um, it wasn't even town, from very rural uh, to uh, to a small town called Macon, Georgia. And uh, they did that sometime in the 1960 time frame or so. And, um, and so I grew up in a, in a small town south of Atlanta, about 100 miles south of Atlanta. Hmm. You've got a few siblings. Where do you fit in the birth order? Yeah, I am. I'm third. And really, we had two families. My my older brother and sister are 10 and 12 years older than me. And um, my younger sister is three years younger than me. So there were four of us. And um, we had a we had a very, very delightful and loving uh, growing up uh, household. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have some like fond memories that come to your mind when you think about your childhood? Oh, plenty. Um, even right now, we're having the cicada invasion here for <laughs> Brood X on the East Coast right now. And although I don't think we had Brood X down in down in South Georgia, um, mm. I do remember when I was very young, uh, you know, harvesting cicada exoskeletons from <laughs> trees. For sure. I thought it was really cool then, and I still think it's uh, it's unique now. Yeah, for sure. 
kind of growing up in a small town, what was the height of your aspirations? And what did you, what did you hope to achieve with your life? Did you have big dreams or, or did they sort of, were they a little bit closer to home and um, not quite as aspirational? I think for the longest time I thought I would come back and, and, and run dad's gas station to tell you the mm-hmm. truth. Um, and sometime in college, I realized that um, that might not be the future and decided to move into an area where I knew I could, I could get a job. And that was uh, in the field of accounting. And um, yeah, I played a lot of team sports. And so the reason I went to my undergrad school was because of uh, a sports opportunity, but mm-hmm. uh, coming out of undergrad, and then working in accounting, at some point I decided it, it was time to go back to law school, and I did that in 1988. Gotcha. Yeah, kind of give us a quick uh, – before we get into the book conversation, what we're going to really kind of talk about mostly today, just paint a little picture of your – I mean, your full-time job. I know you're, you're a KPMG now, but just kind of give a sense of, like, what was your career path? Because um, I think it provides a pretty good contextual backdrop of, you know, really kind of how adventurous it was to jump from – the day job to sort of what we're going to talk about today with these two poetry books? Sure. Well, I left law practice in 1998 and joined KPMG. I was a tax lawyer in my law practice, and and that naturally flows over to the big four accounting firms. And, and so in 1998, several of them approached um, a number of partners in, in my law firm. Many of them went to another, another competitor, and um, I decided to throw it open a little broader. I remember, I remember, calling my dad and say, dad, what do you think about me leaving law practice and and going back to what was then the big six accounting Mm -hmm. firms? Mm -hmm. And he said, um, he said, son, I don't understand anything you do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He did, but I would go wherever, wherever you can help the most people for good. And, Mm -hmm. and it just seemed like that was uh, really excellent, excellent wisdom. So, I came over in 1998 and then um, went through a series. I was in Atlanta at first, and then uh, gradually I moved to Washington in 2001. And then through a series of incidents, uh, became a leader of a practice in 2004. That went really well. And once something goes really well, things sort of build upon each other. Eventually, I ended up uh, traveling globally for seven years and... um, and now I'm back as the uh, managing partner in the Washington D.C. metro area for KPMG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's just again just helps paint a good picture of just what one assumes the life of an accountant would be, and then you've got this other side of your brain that you're tapping into uh, really the last several years. And I think that it's a pretty good juxtaposition. When you think about it, as we kind of transition into your into the books that you've written, um, do you have some favorite works or favorite authors that you t- find yourself turning to regularly? Um, and you know what are what are some of the things that that those books or those or those authors sort of ins- give you? Uh, what do you receive from them that that comes gives you kind of calls you back a lot? Yeah, you know, I've I've long been drawn to. Um, Writers like C.S. Lewis read all of the Chronicles of Narnia to hmm. my kids and um, at least the older ones and then a few of them to the younger ones sort of ran out of gas at some point. But, <laughs> but the, you know, I, so I've always been drawn to him, but I would say it was in 1996 or 97. I remember Robin Williams was hosting the Oscars mm-hmm. and um, 
he introduced he introduced someone for the for the lifetime achievement award and it was uh remarkable because in the in the speech there was a reference to robert frost although it wasn't reference to robert frost it was just simply a quote from robert frost and that quote really seized me i i had never really appreciated poetry as a kid um certainly had had to memorize some present some in you know english classes in high school and and maybe first or second year of college but mm-hmm. But, you know, it never really had grabbed me. And these two lines from Robert Frost really did grab me. And and those two lines were, but yield who will to their separation. My object in living is to unite my avocation and my vocation as my two eyes make one in sight. And when I heard that on the Oscars that night, I thought, wow, that is really powerful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the integration of sort of all parts of your life, your work life, your home life, everything um, to make, to make your life feel like it does when you see out of two eyes, but you see one vision and mm-hmm. really, it was a really beautiful moment for me. And so if I, if I go back in time, that was probably about 11 or 12 years before I started journaling and blogging on a private blog but I would say it was probably very, very instrumental um, to me and, and very, very meaningful moment for me. Hmm. The other one I would say is, um, is there's a recording artist who died young and he was a poet uh, more than he was a recording artist. I think he may not think it that way, but, um, but I was just even today re-listening to some of those old uh, tunes and I thought, wow, that poetry really got deeply inside of me and and really changed my view from what I had as a high schooler, which was, oh boy, we have to go through this again. <laughs> it, really, it, it really changed me into realizing that poetry is a really remarkable medium. Mm, yeah. And you were how old when you saw that Oscars show? I must have been 30, 33 or 34, yeah. 35 maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. What's what's kind of an earlier memory, or maybe the earliest memory you have of something you wrote? Um, and it, obviously, we have stuff for school, but maybe something outside of a required assignment. But was there something that you wrote that, and, and did you find that to be a positive experience? Uh, did you feel affirmed in that moment in that memory, or you know, did that not sit as well as you would have hoped? How that how that land? You know, I'm smiling because it was actually my transition from law practice back to the accounting firm world. Hmm. Um, I, I took some time off, went by myself to a cabin in, um, in the North Georgia mountains. And Mm -hmm. I journaled over a weekend about that transition, about whether I wanted to make that move or not. And, um, it was really very helpful. I, somewhere I still have those notes. I'm not sure which journal they are in anymore, mm-hmm. but but I think that was a very meaningful uh, moment as well. So it was really directional and in, in thinking about how I think better when I write when I write it down. What's your process? You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about your your place in the accounting world, and as we kind of dive a little deeper into these books that you wrote. What's, what's been your writing process? How do, is there a, a ritual or something that you sort of switch from, from that side of your brain, more the analytical side to the creative side? Do you just write when it hits you in, in the moment of the day? How do you, how do you enter into that writing 
I'm really seized by moments. And, you know, it just occurred to me today that I think there are 1,440 minutes in a day and 60 seconds in each minute. But there are also moments which are really powerfully uh, communicative. Mm -hmm. And when I see one of those moments, I'm at the point now where I kind of know it. Um, and I know I'm going to write something about that. One of them in, in, and we'll get to the book, I guess, but one of them in the new book is about go with me to the beach and watch the children at the age of three play by the sea. And that was a really powerful, meaningful moment to me. It, it was, it was shocking to me how a three-year-old, the way they jump at the, at the ocean edge, mm-hmm. you know, on the shore, they really don't, they really don't, they're not confined by gravity the way I am. And, <laughs> and, and then gravity to me played out differently. It played out from, it's not just gravity, the law of gravity, but also the gravity of life, you know, the gravitas, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They're not, they don't care about that. And they're just having mm-hmm. fun. And, and so that's, that has a way that that type of moment sort of, it grabs my attention. And then I, I try to just turn it over in my head a little while and sometimes mm-hmm. it takes sometimes it can come right away and sometimes sometimes i'll just noodle on something for a month or two and and then out yeah. comes something yeah you'll scribble that moment down to be processed at, at the right time we had a moment about that recently with our son playing in the backyard with the two girls who live right behind us and i mean they're just screaming and laughing and having a great time and they're around you know, six to 10 year old range. And I just was thinking, you know, how beautiful that time was and how much, how can we as adults return to that? Um, is it possible? Is it not the same sort of process, you know, we're not even coming to like a complete conclusion, but really just, um, just reveling in that excitement that they have for life. And it just, it's un, it's uncontained, unreserved and just, thinking, how can I, how can I return to that um, at this stage of life? Well, you know, one of the things that's beautiful about writing and about keeping a journal, about keeping a blog is that you begin to learn where you are. Mm -hmm. Where am I emotionally? If, Mm -hmm. If you keep a, if you keep that journal long enough, you will know exactly where you are emotionally. And, and there have been times when I've realized, wow, I'm really dark. Um, yeah. and, and, what, and the beauty of that is that instead of staying in it, then what, what journaling does is say, I really need to look for joy. And that was one of the outgrowths of the first book that, that you helped me. I mean, you were very instrumental in that first book and, mm-hmm. and, and helping me, encouraging me to do it. Um, but one of the that we we let off that book i let it off with a a poem called where to find joy and that poem came about simply because journaling had led me to understand that i was i was not in a joyful place and then i started trying to figure out well where do you find it when you're not Mm -hmm. joyful where do you find it and then what i found is you find it everywhere Mm -hmm. and and you, you just have to be observant in a still spot observant and just let yourself like those children that you've described playing, just let yourself enjoy the miraculous nature of the world we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, and it can really be an everyday experience. As I had, <laughs> I had one recently walking out of Costco, which is not usually a pleasurable experience, but walked by this older couple who were walking in and there was something about them. I, I, I still think fondly of them and I never talked to them. They probably have no idea who that I even noticed them, but it was just a, for some reason sits really well in my memory of, of just a positive experience about this couple walking in. And that was a brief lapse of time. And I have no idea what their story was. They could have been fighting all day long. I have no idea what their, what their situation was, but it was just a, a beautiful experience just walking past them. You know, in the in this in the in book I cite, um, I've got mm-hmm. a poem that's about that very thing. I watched a couple, an older mm-hmm. couple, uh, exit the train, the southbound train from New mm-hmm. York to Washington, and they had been, um, it you know, they were older couple and they had been through a lot. You could tell because um, uh, the woman had experienced a stroke and it was obvious, and she was mm-hmm. holding on, mm-hmm. and the man was guiding her and even that moment in time was so powerfully um, expressive to me that one of the poems in the, in the new book, full flower talks about the full flower of love. And it's not found in my view in the young in heart, but in, in people like the, this couple exiting the train. And it was, mm-hmm. it was really a beautiful moment for me. Raise your hand if you've heard the term FOMO. Okay, just kidding. This is a podcast. I cannot see anything. (laughs) I do hope a few of you were gullible enough to participate, though. FOMO is the fear of missing out, a.k.a. what Joe is feeling by not being a part of this podcast ad break. Your small business marketing strategy is experiencing FOMO. It's missing out on something. It's not spending more money on social media ads. It's not door-to-door knocking. It's not hanging flyers in your local coffee shop or spamming your customers' inboxes with daily emails. The biggest piece your marketing strategy is missing might surprise you. It's blogging. It's been found that companies who blog typically gain at least twice as much web traffic as those that don't blog. And 61% of U.S. consumers say they have made a purchase based solely on a blog. So if you want to stand out from the crowd, spend less dollars on marketing, be listed in relevant Google search results, be known as the local industry expert on your product or service, and finally inspire people to take action, then you are already raising your hand to say that blogging is a good fit for your small business. Now we recognize the challenges and confusion wrapped up in adding a blog to your digital marketing strategy. And that's why we want to help. So visit keyholemarketing.us slash getblogging to discover the 22 reasons why your small business should have a blog, to hear some real talk on why you're avoiding it, and to learn 11 ways that we can help you get one started and keep it going. How did you get to a place where you felt comfortable or, or I don't know, inspired enough to create books from your writings you know that's that's a big step for a lot of people who are just at a place where they're they've been journaling for a long time exercising their thoughts putting them into some sort of form but to now put that in a place where you're ready to share that with somebody else um it's already hard enough when it's somebody you know but then to put it in a place where strangers can enter there and and do it you know how did you jump from 
journal entry to this needs to be shared with others outside of that space? It's been a very slow dance for me, honestly. It's I started my blog in 2008, and I didn't share it with anyone except family and friends. And frankly, I think only about three people actually ever read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, as you know, you and I were were having a drink one day, and mm-hmm. and we we you turned to me and said, you know, you really ought to think about publishing these. And I mm-hmm. turned back to you and said, no, 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 it's just for me. And it's not that, you know, it's not that good. And, and you said, well, I'll tell you what, just turn it over to me and I'll take care of it. And so the, the hard part for me was releasing my grip mm-hmm. right then and, and letting you do it. And yet I decided, you know, I don't know where this goes from here, but let's go with it and see. And what's been amazing since then has been, um, it's really become a it's really become a, a part of who I am in my everyday work now. It's like Robert it's like Robert Frost is mm. you know, as my two eyes make one in sight, um, poetry is now at the center of my personal life and it's mm. become even central in my professional life. Um, in the last week alone, I've had three people three clients actually send me notes uh, asking if they could have a discussion with me about the process of poetry Mm. and who would have thought that would have ever happened. And so it was, it was really, um, you know, your encouragement to begin with and then the encouragement of so many others. And then I recorded a few videos. uh, Mm. I would call them little five minute snippets of, you know, explaining a, a poem and um, we put those out on on YouTube, and they're now on my website. Mm-hmm. And then I did a reading for about twenty five people, and um, all along the way, all of, all I've heard is encouragement. And I think I think part of the reason for that is is people really respond to vulnerability and transparency, mm-hmm. and that's what my writing is about. It's um, at least the first book was clearly transparency Mm -hmm. and vulnerability the second book more about observation about what i saw but i think that first book really gave me it was the if if i can be that vulnerable and that transparent amongst both family friends and then into a third category of strangers even Mm -hmm. then then and the re and the response has been so positive then you know what let's give it a whirl let's keep going yeah yeah yeah, with eyesight, you just mentioned you know what you saw, your observations from the year, and it was a tumultuous 2020 in a lot of ways, of course, with the pandemic and political season, racial tensions. I mean, it was just had a whirlwind of of events. When you talk about your observations, do you, would you characterize that book as your observations of the external world, or maybe observations of the in, your internal processing processing of of those? events here, your emotions, you know, how was it, or was it a mix of both external and internal? I think the first book was probably more about my internal. And Mm -hmm. I think the second book was more about, um, external, what I saw finding events, finding moments, finding a tree in a woodland trust and thinking Mm -hmm. about it. And, and, and yet I would say that you can't, in some sense, you can't separate your internal feelings from that, but but I would say the first one to me is is the first book was much more mm-hmm. introspective, and the second one had that um, sort of extra vision yeah. component to it. Yeah. When when you put a book 
I don't know. Are you writing as you're writing some of these pieces? Are you writing with people in mind? Are they purely uh, for yourself? Uh, I mean, kind of. You know, I always think about that with. Obviously, from a marketing standpoint, we're always thinking about the audience who's going to need to see this. What are their motivational points? As a as a author of these types of books, is it a void of an audience, or are you are you picking somebody to write these things to? You know, I think I think for me, it's more to preserve a moment. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's it's like photography for me. So mm-hmm. when I go back and and read some of the poems in Eyesight, um, Autumn Tender. Mm-hmm. Um, and many others are, there's one called Brown Bird. Um, uh, there's one called Little Wren that's only 15 words long, but I can mm-hmm. remember exactly where I was and, and why I wrote that one. And, yeah. and so for me, it's, um, it's as powerful to me as, as a photograph. And I have to tell you, that's really, that's really unique for me because I'm usually a very visual person. Mm-hmm. So people will come in with, um, you know, in my, in my business, they'll come in with a spreadsheet or they'll come in with a, um, with a, uh, you know, a PowerPoint document with loads of words on it. And I just want them to simplify it into a picture. But for some reason, poetry does that for me too. Mm. And so it's a, it's a, I haven't quite figured that piece out yet, but it's fun to think through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can relate to that as well. I can remember, just odd details about photographs that I've taken. Um, you know, you could ask, Lindsay will ask me all the time. My wife will ask me, you know, what do you, um, you know, when did this happen? Or I have no recollection of those like common (laughs) facts of of life. Um, but yeah, as far as like where I stood in this, what the direction the sun was and the weather, the conditions, (laughs) when I took a photograph like that always sticks with me, which is crazy. I totally understand that. And I'm laughing as you go about that one. Yeah. One of my favorites, I was going to ask you like, what are your, one of your favorites, but that's kind of like if somebody asks, what's your favorite photo you took? It's, you're just never going to, it's like, what's your favorite child? But timeless was one you had written and then also had it made produced into a musical track, which I'm pulling that one out. Cause I really think people should spend time listening to that track. Um, and of course you read the original piece as well, but can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that particular poem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, well, first let me just say this. I think you started asking me, which is my favorite and you're right. <laughs> you, it's like a child. You can't have one. And, yeah. um, and I don't have one uh, every time. Which is your I, favorite child? Can you tell me which is your favorite child? <laughs> <laughs> no, they might hear this. So uh, right, right. No, I don't have a favorite child. Um, the, the Timeless was a really interesting one uh, for me because for years I've had uh, a photograph that was taken at Kiowa Island. It was to celebrate my mom's uh, 80th birthday. And we have uh, family photographs. Uh, we had a photographer come in and take some expanded family photographs and then some one-offs. And and one of them sits on the credenza right in right just between the kitchen and sort of a, a living room area of the of the house here and mm-hmm. i kept looking at it one day and you know i'm empty nested now and the, the kids are gone and and i just kept dwelling on that photograph until until timeless the poem came out and it's about how one day you'll come to see that this photograph uh, has a timeless quality mm. and it's it's interesting how that turned into a song because I didn't ask. Uh, I did commission 
a group of Berkeley students, Berkeley College of Music students um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, they were out of school and, you know, it was an awkward time for everybody that was in school. I did commission them to do one song from the new book and I didn't tell them which one to pick. Mm. And independently, they picked they picked Timeless. And I have to tell you, I, I love the song and I love it more the more I hear it. So the first time I, I heard it, I was, you know, thinking, okay, great. And now I listen to it and I can't stop singing along with it. And mm -hmm. it does have, even the song now has a timeless quality for me as well. So the photograph yeah. is even more meaningful because of both the words that we put to it and the, and the music that the students put to it. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. There's, there's something about it that I'm, I'm always drawn back to it. And I, of course I have my own connection to the song. It brings back connections to photographs I've taken in the past and, and, um, and it kind of has, it doesn't have a Simon and Garfunkel sound to it, but it has that kind of feel to it where you just feel like you're, I don't know, it just pulls you into a memory. Um, uh, they talk about photographs in, in some of their songs, but, uh, I don't know. It has that, that kind of uh, draw for me. You know, the song's only three minutes and 14 seconds long. And the first 30 seconds are, are, are a group of the students that are, are really just humming and, mm -hmm. And so it's not a very long song, but if you go back to the, some of those great Beatles songs, they were very short. Blackbird, for example, I've been singing yeah. a lot lately, and Blackbird's only about two minutes long, and yeah. yet it's a it's a hauntingly beautiful uh, song, and it brings you right back to a particular moment. So I'm I'm really glad they did that, and thanks for asking about it. It's a great, it's, it, it really has, it, ha, it really has reinforced that poem for me as um, as a you know another another one of those like. I'm smiling. It's a really meaningful moment. One day you will come to see that this old photograph framed on the Yolkin credenza it's beautiful too that they were able to preserve that memory. You know, I think that sometimes can be the risk of creating something like that. If you're asking somebody to create a piece that it could have gone a lot of directions, right? You weren't really artistically uh, orchestrating what they obviously you didn't even tell them what song to pick, but also you didn't give them a certain sound or genre. And I don't know, they just felt like they, they landed it really well. And I felt like at the end of the day, it preserved and, and really revered that memory and, and protected that. I think they did a great job with that. You know, the funniest part is that they had to re they had to rearrange some of the lines so that it would work in a song. And I like the way they rearranged it even better. So if I had to go yeah. back and do it again, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm in the next edition of the book you'll make a couple. Of exactly. What do you hope? Just a couple questions, a couple more questions. Um, what do you ultimately hope readers glean from both of your books? And maybe it's different for each one, but what do you hope that people uh, get when they receive those and, and take them for themselves? I just want poetry to be an accessible form of art for people. And I think it's it's inaccessible for a lot of people. And in the end, it's really been helpful for me with with mental health, with strength, resilience, and that's really hard for me to describe for you other than say it was sort of a learned habit. It was a form of mindfulness. It was a form of meditation. It was a mm -hmm. form of prayer. Um, and it really readjusted sort of what I think about all of those topics, mindfulness, meditation, prayer. 
um, they have become my prayers. That is my book of Psalms, so to speak. And um, I think I think it's true that um, I don't know that anyone can do it, but I know that I know that anyone can enjoy the moment that I describe. In other words, I know that if you can just let yourself breathe and think about the beauty in your life, mm-hmm. that I know it will transform you for better. And the other thing you'll see in the book a lot is I'm, I'm constantly drawn by drawn to how magical this world that we live in really is. And the truth is, as adults, we, we sort of lose that sense of magic. Mm-hmm. And you have it as a kid, and, and and maybe that's why, you know, the New Testament talks about the faith of a little child. Mm. It it's so it's so freeing to go back and let yourself enjoy the wonder of what's all around us and how we how we're just uh, a part of something really, really, really unbelievable. And I mm. I hope that people would take from it that. That that's something that all of us can experience. Um, some probably more than others, but I do think that there are moments that are really, really special. And if we can hang on to those and realize how great they are, it can really transform our lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, you said something to me, man. It's probably might have been around the time of the creation of uh, Evensong Poems from Pilgrims book. Uh, you just mentioned something about sort of the other side of life, and it. It's at that time, I mean, there's a, such a significant age gap between you and me. I'm just joking. But, <laughs> there was, but it, was, it was the awareness of, of a time is coming where you, you are on the other side of, you know, yeah. you're, you've lived um, at a place where you're about halfway through or you, you might have already lived more than you probably will <laughs> on the other side of life. And um, it just stuck with me. And it stuck with me since we moved out here to Colorado with – that visual of mountains and going up the mountain and being at the peak and sort of, you know, as you're, you're headed down a different pass on, um, you know, at another stage of life. But I think that uh, connects with what you just said, you'd be able to sort of like, just realize that time is fleeting and uh, moments pass. And there is a different way you navigate through life when you're walking up the mountain, just with this sense of bravado as every minute is just yours and you can do it, whatever you want with it. And there's much more of a preservation I've, I've noticed, of each moment, each experience, um, because, you know, you just realize like there's, there's less and less of those as time goes on. It's, it's amazing how brief life actually is. And I love seeing into what could exist on even the other side of the other side, if you know what I mean by that. Right. Right. And so, um, I don't think we'll get a perfect picture of that here, but yeah, I'm on the, I'm on this, I'm certainly on the second half of, of my life. And, um, and so then you start, you start just thinking, okay, so how can I really thoroughly inhale, breathe in and experience, um, you know, as many moments as I can without letting myself get too stressed or carry too much burden or, or worry, um, really to be free. And so when you, when you ask about, you know, by the way, I, I do write mainly for myself, but in this in this book I cite, um, it was a 2020 New Year's resolution, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't realize where it would go fully. But I know what I wanted to do is I wanted to free myself from self judgment and self criticism, mm-hmm. and 
And at the end of the foreword of that book, I, I invite people to join me because what, what I realized is that when you when you do reach that freedom, you do feel maybe for the first time that you're truly free. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm going to screw up. Yes, everything I do isn't going to be perfect or even optimal, but that's okay. For sure. For sure. Both books can be purchased I know right now via Amazon um, and all proceeds go to benefit the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, which I believe gives grants to help fund uh, research and studies for mental health. What, why did that organization stand out to you? How did that um, get, how did you get connected to that? Yeah, it's a great story. So I was looking for, I was looking for a mental, a way to get involved with mental health more directly um, there's a lot of reasons for that personally that I would like to move into that area. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and even, even for myself, frankly, because sometimes I do go into this like introspective hole and I have to come out of it. Right. And so poetry has been great for me, mindfulness, meditation and the like, but I know that so many people do struggle with, um, mental health in a, in a much more powerful way than, than I do. And, and so, and so I, I was looking for something, and, and I called a few um, charities, some of which deal one-on-one with, you know, try to help families who who have, you know, particular needs uh, that involve mental health. Um, but I was particularly drawn to research for some reason. I just don't know that we know enough about the brain at this point and, and our emotions and, and how our physiology works um, and so, and our neurology works, frankly. Um, and so I literally sent off a few emails to board members of, um, a few charities and, and BBRF brain and behavior research foundation, which is also BBRF.org. They were, uh, one of the board members got back to me right away and we had a, we had a wonderful discussion mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. I talked to the president. Um, they informed me that they have a, a show on uh, PBS called Healthy Minds. So I watched mm-hmm. a few episodes of Healthy Minds and I was really sold on what they're doing. So what they do is they fund early stage research. Uh, this is research before it. You know, once it gets to the National Institutes of Mental Health, a lot of that research is fairly far down the down the road. And, and so, you know, they're documenting what's necessary to get a, a new cure or a new treatment out the door. Um, but I was really interested in sort of early stage research and that's exactly what brain and behavior research foundation uh, funds. And so um, it's been, it's been, it's been a great uh, last year of getting to know them. And I have to tell you it all, it all turns. I've been very impressed by, um, by what they're doing. And uh, I love the fact that a scientific council uh, decides where the, all the, all the grants uh, go and, um, and some of their early stage research is, is very meaningful. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, even if you're on the fence about liking poetry or not, just to know that you're able to support that foundation through a purchase of the book uh, has to make everybody feel good, especially this time where mental health is is certainly on the rise. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So, Joe, since I'm still working, I didn't want there to be any confusion with people about about what's he doing? Is he, is he like mm-hmm. trying to make money off of this? The truth is I publish these books personally. I, I pay for everything. You know, we do the printing. Um, we do a terrific high quality job using um, you and, 
um, and your friends at Comotion Studio to uh, to do the books. Um, I'm not going to make any money on it, but I just didn't even want there to be any perception of mm. that. It costs a lot to print these 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 books. I promise to people they'll look good on their coffee table or their bookshelf because they're really so beautifully put together. Yeah. Um, but no, we I just didn't want there to be an, a perception issue, and so. Um, by making this a, a charitable fundraiser, um, it's just it's just turned it into, frankly, a lot of a lot of fun for me and and something with purpose. Mm-hmm. Just one last question: What would you say to other artists, maybe even accountants, other accountants turned artists, who are maybe on the verge of you know sharing their art with the world but haven't quite gotten to that place where they feel comfortable with? What would be some words of encouragement you might offer them? I've really been struck lately by how many poets are just quietly do their thing in the background and then and then one day it gets published mm-hmm. and in other words they're not striking out to be, you know, a world recognized poet and and I think there are a lot of lay poets like me and I would encourage anyone to try it. It's um there're no rules you can make it whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beauty of it for me has been, I can say some things in poetry that I just can't say any other way. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, f- that freedom, uh, to express myself in a new way is, is so affirming and so brings me such joy that I would encourage anyone to, uh, just give it a try. I mean, I was just reading, I watched a movie recently and Walt Whitman, uh, you know, a Walt Whitman like persona was in there. So I started reading up on Walt Whitman again and, mm-hmm. and realized, um, you know, like a lot of us, he's, he's, uh, I'm going to use a British term here. He's completely bonkers, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it can just, you, you can just, he wrote on his own. He yeah. had one book, he kept adding a poem all the time. And so the book that he published in 1855 was the same book that got published at the end of his life in 18, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, like 30, 40 years later. And it just kept expanding it and re-editing it. He didn't have any. And so you can make it whatever, whatever you like to be. I've, uh, I've got a call next week with, uh, with a um, someone in Malaysia who reached out and said they've been they've been looking through the website. They haven't even received the book yet, and they've been looking through the website. And they said, "Can we just talk about you know your process?" And I'd like to learn more about that. And um, I want to make he he like me wants to make poetry accessible to people. And so mm-hmm. hopefully. Um, I just encourage people just to give it a try. And I hope that what they find in my poetry is something that's accessible and and meaningful. Yeah. And I know that having done photography for years and putting it out there and and selling some pieces and and sharing some images over the years, I think the the first step to put it out there was was hard a little bit because you never really sure you, know, you get some positive feedback from some people who are in yeah. your type circle you know your mom loves it and then yeah, exactly. like, oh, maybe, maybe we should expand this a little bit to make sure it's really as good as what uh, that tight circle says but um but i think what i've learned over those years too has just been to continue to you know produce it for myself capture images that that catch my eye and if it's low on Instagram likes, that's okay because I still found a moment and there was some satisfaction in 
you know, these rotten tree rings on this, from this tree that nobody else would have cared about. But for me, it, it stopped me in my tracks. And I think like that's been, time, there's been times where I've slipped into that slope of um, accolades and, and praise from, from people via different mediums. And I think for me, it's always been helpful to just come back to that. I go, just keep producing for, for myself and, and not be so concerned about the feedback. Yeah, I totally agree. And if, yeah, I, I think that that has been, if, look, if you can free yourself from self-judgment and self-criticism, you can also free yourself from, from the criticism of others. It's amazing to me how our harshest critics or my harshest critic, at least is myself. For sure. And so working on this has really made me realize that, you know what, every poem's not going to resonate with everyone else, but guess what? It's meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. And it, I, it, it's so interesting to see when people email me or text me back and they say, wow, I really got a lot out of, you know, this poem, mm-hmm. that poem, whatever it is. And by the way, it's always something different, right? Every single one resonates with people differently than others. And so right. um, it's just terrific to do that. So I, I might close if you don't mind with because yeah. you've made me think about um, this is my advice to to anyone listening about what, what I'm, you know, I might encourage them to do is the first poem in eyesight is actually called open up. Perfect. Why don't we just close on that? So I'll just thank you right now for, for joining the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and we'll just close it off with you reading that if you would. Great. Open up. Somewhere inside there is an artist latent waiting to be revived in the heart, in the soul, afraid to observe, much less depict what lies within. The complication of that is the beauty of the missed opportunity to behold an unwritten story, a tale of courage and glory that deserves to be told. You've been listening to the Metaphorically Speaking podcast. At Keyhole Marketing, we tell big stories for small businesses. If you're in the Colorado Springs area and ready to tell your business story, we'd love to come alongside you and help you with your content, branding, SEO, social media, or photography needs. For an instant glimpse at your current marketing's strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities, take our free marketing assessment at keyholemarketing.us slash marketing dash assessment. Or send us an email at hi at keyholemarketing.us and let us know how we can help tell your story.